Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. We are in the Christmas season now. Yes. By the time this episode airs, it will be two days after Christmas. Correct. So I hope you had a beautiful Christmas day, and I hope you, this is one of the things I love about being Catholic, I hope you continue that Christmas celebration. kind of saddens my heart when you're driving down the street the day after Christmas, and you see people already put their Christmas tree out to go into the trash. <laughs> like, whoa, 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 you're getting it wrong. We Like, you know, part of the, the, <laughs> the whole part of the Catholic celebration of Christmas is that it begins on Christmas Day, and it keeps going. Right. So keep going with your Christmas celebrations. Absolutely. Speaking of Christmas celebrations, we recently went to a Christmas concert at a local middle school here. And I just want to see our daughter. That's right. So our daughter, who's homeschooled, um, recently started practicing with the public school orchestra playing violin. And that's, it's always a little bit of an adventure for us as homeschoolers to have our children participate in something at the public school. We're so grateful that in our area, they do have that opportunity, but it's always a bit of a culture shock for the kids and, you know, a learning experience that we kind of talk through and share with them what they're going through. So anyway, it was a special event, but because we are not connected with the school very much and because we had never been to one before there was just a lot unknown about it and we couldn't really find any way to know what it would be like and we went and the orchestra played first and we were so proud of her she just she did a, great, did a job. great job playing the violin which she's been taking lessons for about a year almost two years now um so that was very happy for our hearts as parents but that was followed by other musical groups. Uh, the orchestra left the stage, and then we had different choruses uh, from sixth graders and, you know, different groups, and then a, a band, and all of that, we stayed in our seats in the audience. And you and I had very different reactions. <laughs> that is true. I was falling asleep. <laughs> you were just you... back from Mexico, but That's true. regardless. <laughs> I, I was. I was dealing with... Yeah, but even if you hadn't been, that type of thing isn't really... So interesting, especially if your kid isn't in any of the other groups. But I was falling there. asleep, and you were shedding tears. I was. I, th it always touches my heart. A children performing just causes me to tear up. It does. So I, I don't know. It was special to me. But in the meantime, we didn't know this until later, our daughter thought that we would all be leaving as soon as the oh dear. orchestra had finished. And she didn't know where to meet us because we didn't know she was thinking that. We didn't. We thought we she, she was just back there with the other people from the orchestra waiting for the whole event to be over. Yeah, that was our assumption. But no, she was frantically looking so for us. So she's searching. She's walking around the parking lot. She ended up talking with the school principal. I can't find my parents. And... Oh, my goodness. He so, tried to call us. But, of course, they told us to they silence, told us to our, silence phones. our phones. <laughs> while we're in the performance. <laughs> so when she, at the end of the performance, she came up to us with this, there you are. <laughs> and we thought, yes, yes. <laughs> here we are. So that was a pretty funny moment. Traumatized. Of, uh, no, she wasn't traumatized. Semi. She She thought it was funny, too, in the end. But then she talked about it to other people like she was semi-traumatized. <laughs> 
Or will. Yeah. Such is life. Yes. Do you have any updates for us from the Tubi Institute? We have some courses coming up. I I know I shared this on our last episode, but please check out the link below in the show notes for our course schedule. Mm-hmm. We have an online Mary course coming up, uh, which is my favorite to teach. I know I've said it before. It may sound like a broken record here, but I just love teaching this course on the Blessed Mother. It's really a course on the incarnation and the fact that God sent his son born of a woman. What is the significance of that? Who is this woman? Everything the Catholic Church teaches about Mary is to safeguard something the Catholic Church teaches about Christ. It's always Christ and Mary together. Why is that? Male and female together. What is that? New Adam, new Eve. What does that all mean? How does the theology of the body shine a light on that? It shines a brilliant light on that. It's my favorite course to teach. Uh, Check out in the show notes. We're going to be offering it online. Uh, We are offering it in person the first week of January, but that's five days away uh, from the airing of this podcast, five or six days away. Hey, say a prayer for us. Say a prayer for that one. (laughs) Uh, But if you want to take it online, uh, you can check out the link. We also have the Sexual Integration and Redemption course coming up, uh, taught by our friends at Desert Stream Ministries. Check that out in the show notes as well. We also have some Made for More events coming up, which are these parish events where we travel and bring Theology of the Body to the parish level. You can check out our schedule of Made for More events and see if we're coming to your area or the area of any of your friends or family members elsewhere in the country. Uh, Check that out in the show notes as well. Hmm. Our first question is from an anonymous patron. He says, Hi, Christopher and Wendy. This podcast has been a joy and a blessing for both my wife and me. I hope I can get more people to be patrons of the TOB Institute so they can learn the wonder of JP2's Theology of the Body, especially from both of you who are daily seeking the integration of the teachings in your head and your heart. Well, thank you, dear person. Mm -hmm. That blesses me to hear. My question is this. I believe that in the early parts of our marriage, I caused wounds in my wife's heart that led her to believe that my love for her is partially conditional on her body's appearance. I was not very present to her during and after her first pregnancy. And since then, the Lord has blessed us with four children. But each time she's worked hard on, quote, losing weight, she opens up to me and says things like, am I beautiful? Mm. I just want you to want me. Mm. She covers herself up from me because of how her body has changed. Mm. And I try to constantly affirm that she still is and will always be beautiful to me. I fear that as we both age, she'll feel like I won't want her anymore. As I wrestle with this, I find myself withholding a sometimes playful compliment about her I would normally give because I don't want her to think that that her appearance is such an important pillar in our relationship. Or is it? I'm confused. I need help on how to balance all of this. Bless you, dear brother. Wow. Wow. You and I, Wendy, we can relate to all of this because of what you and I have been through here. And I don't think we we can really comprehend the influence of the media on the way we think about these things. Mm-hmm. 
we have been painfully warped in our way of thinking about the human body in this media culture that presents to us these hyper-eroticized and idealized images of the human body ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. This has warped us, both men and women, in ways that cause pain, real pain, in real relationships. And you and I, Wendy, we have not been immune to that. Uh, I know I was warped by the media in this way, and that impacted the way you and I have related. Uh, I know it caused you wounds, caused me wounds. We're, we're all wounded here. So, brother, you, this is, what you're going through is, is very human, uh, human in the sense of our fallen reality as human beings. Um, I, I want to tell you that going on the journey of bringing into the light with the Lord in your own prayer life the ways you have hurt your wife, the ways that the, the culture have shaped you to think a certain way about what a woman is supposed to look like, to bring into the light with the Lord ways that maybe because of the way you were shaped, you found yourself disappointed in the way your wife looked. When a man finds himself in that situation, rather than dealing with his own warped view, what he often does is he tries to change his wife to conform to that warped view, and that just causes more pain. And that is evidenced in your relationship by your wife hiding her body from you. Uh, and and kind of fearfully wondering, am I attractive to my husband? Does he want me? Now, you can't carry the full weight of all of that as her husband because some of that comes from her own kind of buying into the societal line about what makes a body beautiful or not beautiful. And both men and women here carry uh, a, a wound. So, one of the main things you can do, my brother, for your wife in this situation is take an honest inventory of the ways the culture has shaped the way you think about your wife's body and bring it all into the light, journal it all out, and bring it into the confessional. Bring the way you've, ways you've hurt your wife here into the confessional and allow those sacramental graces into your heart. This is a journey that I have been on for, well, uh, 26 years of, of married life, because we can never say in this life, we've arrived. We can never say, now I see perfectly well. <laughs> now I understand God's plan for the body perfectly and live it and see it perfectly. No, there are new stages of the journey. Um, I'll just confess, I can relate very much to what you're saying about that fear of, of aging and mm -hmm. what happens when you're aging. Uh, Wendy, you, you turned 49 uh, a couple months ago. I turned 52 a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. We are clearly, I'm looking at a picture right now of when we were newly married that's on my desk here in my office. Uh -huh. And we are young people there. <laughs> Not a gray hair on our heads. We're both thin, no wrinkles <laughs> on our faces, no age spots. We have 
we have aged sure. and we're going to keep aging. <laughs> and aging is a reminder of death. That's what it is. And as we've aged, I've been confronted more and more with this reality of our mortality. And I, I can recall times where I've said to you, Wendy, I, I, I don't want you to die. I, I hate the fact that you're going to die. I don't want you to die. I am not a fan of death. Don't like it. And we shouldn't like death. Death is not death is not something we should like, right? Christ has sanctified death. Thanks be to God. And in Jesus Christ, death becomes a pathway into resurrection. Praise be to God. But that does not mean death itself is something good. Death is not something good. It was not God's plan that we would decay and die. And this this clinging to youth is really something we do in lieu of faith in the resurrection. I tell the story in my book, Love is Patient, But I'm Not, and uh, we'll put the link to that book in the show notes if you're interested. That book is really just a book of stories from my own life about where I failed to love and where God's mercy has, has, has come into my life and put me on a journey of recovering more and more what it means to love. Um, But in the book, I tell the story of going into a church, this was some years ago, and a a woman, probably in her 20s, came into the church with who I assumed was her grandmother, a woman probably in her 70s or 80s, and I was just drawn to the woman who was young. My eye just went there, and I almost didn't even want to look at the older woman. And I, I, I noticed that, and I just said, Lord, what's going on in my heart here? And he said, you're afraid of death. That's what's going on in your heart here. And then he asked me, like a kind of question I heard in my heart, who's closer to glory? If in the normal course of things, things go on, you know, and the young person doesn't die from some accident or premature death, who's closer to glory? Who's closer to the the, the glory of of what comes next? The glory of the resurrection. Who's closer to that? Well, the older woman is. <laughs> and, and the point of all of this is that the glory we desire, the glory in the body, that's what we desire. And that desire in and of itself is not bad. In fact, that desire in and of itself is good and holy and right to desire glory in the body, to desire the body to shine with all the splendor God intends for it to shine with, to desire perfect beauty in the human body, God put that desire in the human heart. But to look for it backwards as you're aging, to look for it in youth, you're looking the wrong direction. The real satisfaction of the desire for perfect beauty in the human body is full speed ahead. Through death, through the decay of the body, through the humiliation of aging and dying, and let's look at that word humiliation. Uh, it comes from hummus, which comes from which is earth, right? The ultimate humiliation of the human body is that it will return to the earth, that it will return to dust. But it is via the humiliation of the body that we will experience the glorification of the body. That's what we really desire. So we can allow our desire for the full splendor and glory of the human body 
we can allow that desire to fuel our our yearning for the resurrection for the for the glorification of the body that and and to recognize that the way we get there is by passing through its humiliation wendy i'm going to say it because i feel it in my bones I desire the perfect beauty of your body. Mm. And I have to ask your forgiveness, and I will, publicly here on this podcast. I've done it privately. This is not something I'm doing for the first time, but I want to do it again because I feel it even more deeply because I'm growing. I, I ask your forgiveness for the ways that my desire for the beauty of your body has has led me to des- i have i have desired the beauty of your body in in a wrong way and i know that has wounded you mm. because you know as well as i about the inevitability of aging and decay and the solution to that fear we have of aging and decay is not dyeing your hair and getting plastic surgery the only way to appease that fear is to place all of our faith and all of our hope for the perfect beauty of the body in the resurrection of the body that is promised us in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And when I say to you, Wendy, I desire deep in my bones, I desire to rejoice in the perfect beauty of your body. I am not asking you to dye your hair. I am not asking you to get plastic surgery. I'm not asking you to go on some crazy diet. I am desiring for you to know in your true bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the glorification of your body. And I can't wait, although I have to, and the waiting stretches the desire. (laughs) I ask you, Lord, for the grace to wait for the glorification of my wife's body. Thank you, my love. I do forgive you, and I, I thank you for bringing that up. You know, you're asking for forgiveness, and I will say that you know this is a journey that we're on in this. And that life. forgiveness it has doesn't come easily. Like it, I just want to say that, like we've we've wrestled here, we've struggled here. It's been a painful place in our marriage. And that forgiveness that you grant, which I receive and I thank you for, I know it has come with a lot of pain and sorrow. I also want to just say that I, in your answer to this question, I'm just at kind of observing you sharing this and thinking you're kind of illustrating some principles that I think are so helpful that I just want to point Please. out to our listeners. Please do. That, um, first of all, this husband has a beautiful insight that his wife's anxieties could be related to things he did in the past. Yes, yes. And he doesn't say whether they, two of them have talked about those experiences of the past. Um, I think that we would certainly recommend that as part of their process as yes. a couple in growing through this, that they would talk about it. Uh, about the specifics and their own unique experience, which is, you know, particular to their story, um, that they would talk about that and allow the grace to enter into their story, that nothing would be lost, but that something more beautiful would lie on the other side of going through that suffering, that 
they both are feeling. Um, but I also see how you're sharing that reflecting on that desire that you had and that many people have to, to see their spouse in this kind of matching some ideal is a, is a twisted desire. Yes, yes. And so in your prayer, you've asked the Lord to untwist that desire. And what is the, the real good that is desired here? And how you've journeyed through to see that it's the desire for the glory of the body in heaven, which is a good desire. Well, how do we get there? It's not by conforming to whatever the current social Correct. standard Correct. is for physical appearance. Correct. It's by conforming in our hearts to the life of Christ and journeying the path of love and sacrifice and virtue and courage and mission and all those beautiful things that lead us to the glory of heaven, all of which we can do better as married people if that's our vocation. And Correct. so that increases our bond with one another instead of having it be something that creates distance and pain between us and we understand the true calling of a beautiful glorified body it, it causes us to joyfully enter into this life of marriage with one another as we are right now we don't need to That's right. fix ourselves That's right. we need to just unite ourselves in this journey together and that is the the fruit of praying through that painful desire. So I just want to affirm that that is what you're showing our listeners by your answer to this question and to encourage all of us to take to heart the power of allowing the Lord to show us what he truly desires for us and to align our hearts with that. Thank you, love. Thank you. And I, I want to share one of my favorite passages, all-time favorite passages from John Paul II. This is something he wrote before he became Pope. It's in a retreat to artists, which, by the way, the Theology of the Body Institute just recently released this retreat to artists. It's never before been published in English. The retreat is called God is Beauty. It is now available. We will put a link in the show notes to this beautiful new volume. It has the retreat from Carol Wojtyla in it. It has an introduction and a commentary from yours truly, and it has several reflections from other artists and theologians unpacking the contents of the retreat, which is so rich. But here's the passage. Uh, John Paul II tells the story as a young priest, and I'm sure I've shared this in a previous podcast. I can't imagine I haven't since it's one of my favorite all-time JP2 quotes. But anyway, bears repeating. As a young priest, he went to the Diocletian baths in Rome, where he encountered all of these uh, Greek sculptures of nude bodies. And he says he took a great effort to understand what the Greeks were really looking for in this idealized portrayal of the naked human body. And he says it two or three times, what, what a great effort it took I took a great pains to understand what were they looking for. Mm. And, and it's such a great example to us because oftentimes when we, when we run into our, our uh, things that cause us pain, our sinful tendencies, we just think, oh, that's bad, throw it away. Well, let's take, let's take the example of John Paul II, who as a young priest, 
studied these nude sculptures and and didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. He said, rather, I want to press in. I want to understand what they were really seeking. And this is what he says. By doing so over many hours, taking that effort, he says, I came to understand the gospel anew, and I came to understand it more deeply. What they were looking for was perfect beauty manifested in the human body. And guess what? This is the Christian proclamation. That perfect beauty with a capital B. What's the title of this retreat? God is beauty. Only God is beauty in the absolute sense of the word. And that absolute beauty was manifested in human flesh. When God sent his son, a male child born of a woman, in male flesh, in female flesh, Jesus and Mary, perfect beauty has been manifested. What we are desiring when we, re when we desire perfect beauty in the body what we're really desiring is the mystery of the incarnation that took place in the womb of Mary. That's what we're desiring. As we journey ever more deeply into that great mystery of perfect beauty revealed in the body of Christ, born of Mary's body, right? As we enter in that yearning for beauty in the body, we are given the hope not only that we will behold the perfect beauty of God manifested in the bodies of Jesus and Mary, but we will participate in that beauty also bodily. This is the hope. This is the hope that our desire for perfect beauty in the body will be realized. And it's not realized in, in fantasizing about idealized images it's not realized in demanding that the person you love go on some crazy diet or have plastic surgery or get breast implants. It's not realized in any of that. It's realized in placing all of our hope for the fulfillment of this God-given desire in the God-given gift and promise of the glorification of our bodies. And the paradox, the rub, the difficulty of living that promise is that the path to glorification is the humiliation of the body. But Wendy, <laughs> I embrace it with you. We're getting old together. We're growing old together. We're going to get gray together. We're going to have even more wrinkly skin. We're going to have even more age spots. We're going to be even more out of shape. And you know what? I embrace it because that's the path to the glorification of our bodies. Can't wait to be there with you, my love. Let's do it full speed ahead. <laughs> Okay. Lord, help me to stay on that path. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Our next question is from Martha. Hello, Martha. Martha says, In marriage, sexual desire may be expressed through prayer, as you have explained, but also during intercourse with the spouse, which is a foreshadowing of eternal union. Sexual desire for the celibate, however, solely finds expression through prayer, I think. What then does this entail for the celibate's body? Since it seems the religious cannot express these desires physically, 
at least in the way married individuals do, are their sexual desires quelled or doused when they offer them up in prayer? Or rather, are they in some way satisfied or sanctified or transfigured or something? What happens? Martha, I love your question. Thank you for asking it. Thank you for going there. Thank you for thinking into this. Thank you for for really wanting to enter into this is such a very good and very practical question. I I want to say that for married people, prayer and sexual expression in the marital embrace is not an either-or, that the marital embrace itself is meant to be, and here I'm just quoting John Paul II, Uh, that conjugal union is meant to be in some way liturgical. That means it's meant to be an expression of prayer. Uh, It's not that you add a prayer on top. It's not that you, you say a prayer during your marital embrace. All of that is fine and good if, praise God for that too, but the marital embrace itself properly lived and experienced is a prayer. What is prayer? Prayer, the fathers of the church tell us, and here I'm quoting Pope Benedict XVI, the fathers of the church tell us that prayer properly understood is nothing other than becoming a longing for God, right? The marital embrace is meant to be a sacramental expression of our ultimate destiny, which is union with God. And so, Pope Benedict XVI also says, this is in his book, uh, Spirit of the Liturgy, which he wrote as Cardinal Ratzinger, he says, when the Christian prays, he is seeking nuptial union with the Lord. Now, what does this mean? This is, this is where, the, I just love your question, Martha. What does this mean for the celibate? Because the celibate does not have the sexual expression of that. Uh, you asked, does their sexual desire in becoming prayer does that get quelled or somehow, what did she say, quelled or, or, or doused? Or doused. And then there was another maybe satisfied or sanctified or transfigured? Yeah, not. I would not use the word quelled or doused. I would use the words transfigured and supernaturally satisfied. And, and he, now, I'm, if there are plenty of celibates out there saying, I don't have any experience of that. Well, keep going on the journey, and you will. And here I'm going to hold out to us as an example of where this is meant to go, where this is meant to lead, I'm going to hold out to you the example of Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila, in her prayer, experienced such an ecstasy in union with God that theologians had to come up with a word for it, and the theologians called it transverberation, (laughs) where her body, her very body, came to vibrate with with an ecstasy. Uh, She says in her writings, it was a, a primarily spiritual experience. However, she goes on to say, but my body also had a share in the experience, indeed a great share. And then she says, if you don't believe me, I beg you to ask God for a similar experience. Now, let's, let's make some distinctions here. 
The Catechism says that such an experience of a bodily ecstasy, uh, Teresa, in some of these bodily ecstasies, she would levitate. She would receive the Eucharist, which is the consummation of the mystical marriage, and her, her body would float up into the rafters. Now, these are the extraordinary signs of the mystical life, the Catechism tells us. Few experience the extraordinary signs of the mystical life. But all of us are called to enter into the ordinary mystical life, which means opening our deepest yearning, which is properly called eros, E-R-O-S, opening our deepest yearning for infinite joy to infinite joy. We are given this promise by Christ himself when he says, love one another as I have loved you. Why? So that my joy might be in you, and your joy might be complete. What we are talking about here is the infinite joy and ecstasy of the Trinitarian life. The good news of the gospel is that we are invited to share in this bodily. Teresa of Avila, what she experienced, although, you know, levitation, for example, would be an extraordinary sign, nonetheless, the Catechism says these extraordinary signs are given to some to demonstrate visibly and externally the interior gift given to all. But we have to progress on our journey. And, and here we must distinguish, as Jesus himself does, between the wise virgins and the unwise virgins. The, the wise virgins have oil for their lamps, and their lamps are lit on fire. The unwise virgins have no oil for their lamps. They've run out of oil. They, they are, in other words, they're not on the journey of being inflamed with divine love. They've shut down. They've hardened their hearts, perhaps, or maybe they're, they, do, they don't know how to go on that journey, or maybe they're, they're just terribly wounded and don't know how to open those wounds to the healing that they need. There could be any number of reasons, but we must continue to hold out this journey that leads to what the mystics call nuptial union with the Lord. And here I'm, I'm going to quote as best I can from memory uh, John Paul's document, Novo Millennio Inuente, that's the Latin, which is at the dawn of the new millennium. This is his pastoral plan for the new millennium. And by the way, we're only nearly 22 years here into the new millennium. That's still young. This is still the pastoral plan for the new millennium. Hasn't changed. This is what he says in number 33. He says, we have a duty to show the world the depth to which Christian prayer can lead us. And he says, both in the East and the West, the mystical tradition of East and West show us that prayer can progress as a genuine dialogue of love between God and the human heart to the point that the person becomes wholly possessed by the Holy Spirit, vibrating at the Spirit's touch, totally immersed as a son or daughter in the love of the Father. John Paul goes on to say that this journey, and it's a journey into this, it's a journey sustained by grace, but it demands an intense personal commitment on our part 
and it is no stranger to the painful purifications that the mystical tradition calls the dark nights. But as we embrace these dark nights of purification, and we have to add here that this is where, as John of the Cross says, this is where many people give up the journey because those purifications are painful, and people don't want to pass through those painful purifications, so they say, enough, don't want to do it. If we persevere through those painful purifications, it leads, John Paul II says, to the ineffable joy of what the mystics call nuptial union with the Lord. And then he adds, how can we forget here, among the many shining examples, how can we forget here the example of St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila? Mm. So yes, it leads. <laughs> if we pass through those painful purifications and our rocket engines get directed towards the stars, Eros gets aimed at, at the divine, we come to experience tastes of an ecstasy, an ecstasy in union with the Lord. This is real. Mm. It's not just kind of pie-in-the-sky idealism. This is the path to which the Christian life leads. If we stay the journey, we will, we will experience such things. I, I really like how many times you said the journey there. Um, and to remember that people called to celibacy, people who make vows are, have not suddenly arrived on their day of making vows any more than married more people than, have yeah, arrived right. on our wedding days. We're all on a journey. And the answer to what happens physically, um, you know, with physical desires certainly varies from person to person who's in a celibate walk. But I think one of the things we find in TOB is that we are recognizing the deeper meaning of the physical experiences. It points us to something in our hearts. Yes. And so yes. a person who's embracing the call to celibacy, marriage of the lamb, is looking, hopefully, at the physical experiences of sexual desire has evidence of a deeper desire in the heart. Well said, Wendy, yes. And so that's the journey, because sometimes as human beings, they will experience those desires in a powerful physical way. Those with a celibate vocation are not called to repress their sexual desires, but to see them as a window to the des true desires of the heart, we're all called to that, so that they would lead us to, to desire the marriage of heaven that we all desire. I think that any celibate person working through this journey should also have spiritual direction, should have the help of many things, so that the answer to this question isn't the same for any two people. It's all a personal journey just as no two marriages are the same, but right. um, but that is you know where the Lord is um, just so loving and present to each one of us in our unique journey, and especially for those who have given themselves to Him in this way. I love something John Paul II says in his book Love and Responsibility, which is applicable here. He says a readily roused sensuality is the stuff from which a rich 
if difficult personal life can be made. And I am convinced he's saying that with with such depth depth of conviction because I think he's speaking autobiographically here. Clearly, he's a, uh, uh, he was a celibate man. Uh, he lived the vocation of celibacy for the kingdom. But he, I, if I'm right, he is confessing that he himself had a rich and readily roused sens- sensuality. And to live out the celibate vocation rightly is not a repression of that, as you said, Wendy. It's an opening of that to the deeper meaning of it, which allows for an integration between body and soul, and it allows for a, a gift of self to the Lord that becomes itself a way of living out the truth of sexuality. Because the ultimate truth of sexuality is not the union of man and woman. That's just the foreshadowing. The ultimate truth of sexuality is the call to union with God. God in himself is not sexual. God is pure spirit. But what we are destined to is foreshadowed in the mystery of human sexuality. And even in eternity, our sexuality will not be erased. It will be lived out in a different way, uh, in a virginal way, in the, in the marriage of the Lamb. And virginal here, <laughs> and this is really a summary of the whole point, virginal does not mean the absence of union. It means the perfection of union afforded by the integrity of the body and the soul. That's what we're after. That's what we're destined for. Celibacy in its own way is a witness to that. Marriage in its own way is a witness to that. Uh, Both lead to the same place when lived rightly. Our next question relates to these topics. It's from an anonymous listener who says, Why is it that marriage and holy orders are sacraments, but not religious life for sisters, brothers, and consecrated singles? What is the significance of marriage and holy orders being sacraments and the other vocations not? Great, excellent question. Happy to address that. Here's the short of it. We could answer this with a doctoral dissertation, but we don't have time to present a doctoral dissertation. That is true. No time. On this podcast. No, we don't want But here's, (laughs) and we don't want, that would be a long podcast. Here is the, the crux of it. There are no sacraments in heaven. Why? Because sacraments are earthly participations in heavenly realities. You no longer need signs to point you to the heavenly reality when you are in the heavenly reality. The heavenly reality for which we are all destined, as we were saying just a few moments ago, is the marriage of the Lamb. Marriage is a sacrament here on planet Earth because it's the earthly way of participating in that reality while on Earth. This is why Jesus says in the resurrection, men and women are no longer given in marriage. Why? Because you no longer need a sign to point you to Disneyland when you have arrived in Disneyland. You're there. Why is celibacy for the kingdom not a sacrament? Holy orders is, as the questioner pointed out, but that's a separate topic. Celibacy in itself is not a sacrament. Why? Because it is an immediate 
meaning not mediated participation in the marriage of the Lamb, right? The sacrament of marriage mediates the marriage of the Lamb to the married couple. Mm -hmm. But the celibate man or woman, meaning celibate for the kingdom, that's very important. We're talking about celibacy for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about uh, celibacy because you never wanted to get married. We're not talking about celibacy because you just want to live up the bachelor lifestyle. We're talking about a specific commitment of celibacy for the kingdom, which on this note, as I often say, I, I think it's unfortunate that we define celibacy, this vocation, with the word celibacy. I think we should put it in the positive rather than the negative. Celibacy tells us what they're not doing, but if we were to describe it as the marriage of the Lamb, that tells us what they are doing. Mm -hmm. And this vocation is an immediate choice for the marriage of the Lamb. In other words, a choice for the marriage of the Lamb that is not mediated by a sacrament. This is where we're all headed. We're headed to the marriage of the Lamb, and we are headed to an immediate participation in the life of Christ. Before you talk about holy orders, because I think you should explain why mm -hmm. that one is a sacrament, I just want to say that I can understand how in the process of learning our faith, sometimes maybe our teachers or we conceive of it as sort of sacraments being sort of like, the church comes in to give us a special blessing at important right. times in our right. life. Right. And I say that in a sort of silly tone because it, even though it might be meaningful at a certain stage in our development, it can cause confusion later when we say, well, why don't I get a sacrament for what I want to do with That's my right. life? Right. You know, um, you know, so it could be meaningful, like to think, conceive of confirmation as like the church giving us a blessing for entering into adulthood or, you know, this kind of way of understanding what a sacrament is. And then we feel like, well, my life choice, if if I'm called to celibacy, doesn't get that blessing. Yeah. And that's just part of kind of a incomplete formation, I think, that we can have in our in our growing up because we're learning this faith from a time in our lives when all this talk about the marriage of the Lamb wouldn't even make sense to us. You're well said, Wendy. It is it is an incomplete way of of looking at a sacrament, an inadequate. It doesn't right. inadequate. If you pick apart that word, it means not equal to what a sacrament really right. is. So it's understandable that you know at some point we would feel like a little bit offended that as if the church were withholding something right. from us. And so I think all what you're explaining about the the actual theology of sacraments is so helpful, and I think that will help us understand that priesthood is not the same thing as the call to celibacy. Correct. And priesthood, holy orders, is a sacrament for a reason. And yes. so you can share it's that. It's a sacrament, holy orders, the diaconate, priesthood, the episcopacy, meaning being ordained a bishop. Uh, holy orders is a sacrament because it is an earthly way of communicating the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. Mm. So we need a sacrament to mediate the priesthood of Jesus Christ mm, while we are here on earth. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, and if you are a real student of theology and you're looking for a doctoral dissertation, <laughs> here's a topic you could explore. It's right in the scripture that 
when you are when you are a priest, you are a priest forever, right? A priest forever according to the line in the line of Melchizedek, right? So there is some sense in which the ordained priest, his priesthood will continue in eternity somehow. Hmm. But not sacramentally because <laughs> there are no sacraments in heaven. I think something similar could be said about marriage as well, that what you and I had in this life, Wendy, we have now in this yeah. life, will not be erased, but it will be taken up into the marriage of the Lamb. It will be completed. Mm. So I think there's probably some parallel. I haven't really explored this, so I'm kind of shooting from the hip here. <laughs> um, and maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, I would probably nuance this differently if I gave it more thought, but I think there is a connection to the manner in which our marriage will continue, but not as a sacrament, and the priesthood of an ordained priest will continue, but not in the manner of a sacrament. Mm. That's worthy of exploration. I have to give that some more thought. Mm. So thank you, anonymous questioner, for posing that question. Mm -hmm. You put a little, a little uh, gave me a little impetus to explore a, a very interesting theological question, which I want to dive more deeply into. Yes. Well, in closing, I want to suggest to everybody out there that you click on the link in the show notes to get yourself a copy of that retreat from Carol Wojtyla called mm -hmm. God is Beauty. It is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen written from Wojtyla. It will take you on a retreat into your own heart. You don't have to be an artist to benefit from it. In fact, John Paul II says everyone is called to be an artist in this sense. We are called to make of our lives a great work of art. And Wojtyla's retreat will help you do that. What happens as we more and more make of our lives a great work of art? We discover who we really are as indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gifts of life and love. That's what we become. And Wendy, I just stole your line, so maybe you don't even have to say it. No, I want to. <laughs> you know what? I think people might go mad if you didn't say it. I have to it. say so it. They won't know it's over. <laughs> become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.